Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we have got Peter Johnson, John Farthing, Dan Watkins, and I'm Hazel Thurston. On the show today we have got a film buff or film bluff quiz. We've got a shameful gap, so listen out for a Schwarzenegger Cameron related gap later on. And a new feature, we're going to do some movies from our own birth years. But we're going to start the show, as we always do, with some nerd recommendations. How are you doing with your sentence, John? Your Michael Bay-a-thon? I am still not watching a single Michael Bay film. Judge. I'm taking it to the Court of Nerd Appeal, followed by the European Court of Nerd Rights, followed by the Supreme Nerd Court, and I will refuse to watch a single Bay film until every possible avenue of appeal has gone. Unfortunately, the court has voted for Bay Brexit, so <laughs> you will carry out your sentence, beginning with Bad Boys and moving on to Bad Boys 2. Actually, Bad Boys isn't that bad, is it? No. No. I forgot you directed that. Mm. So would he. <laughs> so, let's do some nerd recommendations. Who would like to go first? I will go first. Okay, off you go, Dan. I have a book to recommend. I have just finished the first book of the Mortal Engines series, or Predator Cities as the series of books I think is called. Is this the thing there's a movie just about? Yeah, that's, I'd never heard of it until Peter Jackson's Facebook page put up the first trailer for this weird looking film where cities move around and eat each other. And my brother-in-law had a copy of the first book and I really liked it. It's one of these books that you finish a chapter and you do want to know what happens next. There's a really good world building in there because it's set in a world thousands of years after a 60-minute war where basically the countries of the world pretty much wiped each other out. And certain cities have decided in order to carry on gaining resources, they'll build massive wheels and move around. And it's a system known as municipal Darwinism. The main character is an apprentice historian who works in the Museum of London, and when it eats a small town, things start to unravel. The book is really good. It probably would be classed as a young adult book if it came out now, but it was about 20 years ago when the first book was released. I'd put it at about the level of the first couple of Harry Potter books. Lots of unexpected things happen. It goes places you don't expect. It's got lots of really clever ways that this world has evolved. And watching the most recent trailer for the film, I'm intrigued by it. The trailer gives away absolutely everything from the book. All trailers do these days. I'm interested to see how they visually do it and whether they do leave anything out, because it's the first book in a series of four, and I've got no idea where it's going to go next based on what happens at the end. So I recommend Musical number? There's no musical number I'm, in I'm it. just thinking an unexpected yeah. ending to the book. <laughs> that would be unexpected. That could happen in book two. But it's a nice, easy read. Took me less than a week in my lunch break to get through it. So if you were intrigued by the trailer for the film, it would be worth giving it a little look. When's the film due out? I think it's Christmas. I think they're taking the old Hobbit slot. It's not directed by Peter Jackson, though, is it? He's just a producer on it. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think the director worked on the visual effects of all of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit films. So you can see from the trailer, London looks really, really impressive. The amount of details in it is something you'd really need. The amount of stuff that London has and the amount of little bits of technology around the world that Philip Reeve, the author, has created, you'd need really good visual effects people to make that work. So is, is London itself on wheels as well? London is on wheels. It is a great follower of municipal Darwinism, but there are other cities that are called anti-tractionist and they stay put. Mm. If London runs out of smaller towns to eat, it will run out of fuel, it will run out of resources and it will be stuck. And then an even bigger city will come and eat London and then bad things happen. So if it runs out within a landmass, do they then cross the water? By the sounds of the way the book's written, there isn't a lot of water left. What was the North Sea in Europe is now a huge wasteland called the Hunting Ground. And the book starts with London venturing out from the mountains that were once Britain into the hunting ground of the old North Sea from thousands of years in the past. Mm. So what happens to a village if it's eaten? The way it's described in the book, at the front of London are these huge gates called the Jaws. And it just swallows up the city and you go into the gut where the Guild of Engineers is waiting to rip apart your town, take all the metal, take all the resources. The people on board become refugees in your city, and if they're of use, you go up and I think you become part of London, and if you don't, I think they get rid of you because you're a drain on the resources. It's not a pleasant place to live, Mm -hmm. as Tom discovers. And this book's fiction. I I believe... Presently. (laughs) Yeah, presently fiction, but you never know. And that's my recommendation. Oh, I will look forward to, I won't read the book. I'll be honest, I'm not going to read the book, but I will, I will watch the film, possibly. I didn't like the trailer. Neither did I, but if it's as enjoyable as the book is, mm-hmm. despite all of the bleakness that that apocalypse sounds like, there is a lot of fun in there and there should be a really tight adventure plot if they are sticking to the book. If it's done well, it should be really good fun. It sounds almost Terry Gilliam-esque. Yeah, there's definitely a hint of that. There's a touch of steampunk in there. There's a bit of James Cameron-ish sci-fi. There's all sorts of influences thrown in. I think what Philip Reeve's done is throw a lot of stuff at the wall, but almost all of it sticks. Mm -hmm. There's not a bit of it where you go, oh, no, this is just silly. Within the world that he's built, there are silly bits that actually work quite well within the context of what they're talking about. Thanks, Dan. John, what have you been up to recently? I'm going to recommend a TV series. Um, I'm going to recommend Atlanta, which I had very, very little interest in. But it was recommended to me by three or four people who I really trust. And I absolutely love it. I think it's great. It's not quite what you would expect from the advertising. It's Donald Glover, who we know as Childish Gambino uh, from Community and as a sexy lander. Mm Mm-hmm. He is a character called Ern, who is a college dropout, lives with his on-off girlfriend and their daughter, and becomes the manager of his cousin, who is a rapper called Paperboy. That sounds quite straightforward, but the show goes on like surrealistic detours and is very narratively interesting and plays with the format a lot. So there's one episode which is entirely Paperboy being interviewed on a black American TV network and we cut to sort of spoof commercials and animation and things like that. There's an episode with an invisible car, which I don't really want to spoil. 
Donald Glover's described it as Twin Peaks for rappers, which is quite an accurate description. It's not quite as strange as that, and you've got this realistic narrative going through it, but there's this strange surrealness and unpredictability underneath it as well, and it's very, very funny, and Donald Glover is so charismatic. He writes it, he directs some episodes. It's very much his baby, but the supporting cast is great. And the entire first series is on iPlayer. Mm. Have the years been kind to the notion of invisible cars from uh, the atrocity that is Die Another Day? Yes, there is a much more realistic invisible car Mm. seen on an iPhone screen. I have seen the first episode. If I were to carry on, is it same sort of tone as the first episode or does it shift around? Same sort of tone, but becomes sort of looser and more experimental. The first episode very much is setting the plot up. I think Donald Glover said he deliberately made the pilot quite generic in order to almost sneak it past the network. We did watch the pilot just this week, actually. And I must say the pilot didn't grab me. But mm-hmm. uh, if it goes Same. different places, maybe we'll give it a go. Yeah. I mean, the episodes are 23 minutes each and there's 10 of them in the first series. So it's not a massive time commitment. This is going to sound very unprofessional, but I haven't watched anything nerdy recently. <laughs> I've been watching the World Cup the cricket and Wimbledon oh and Love Island and I'm guessing you don't want me to talk about any of those god no no um but I have um who would win in a fight the World Cup or Wimbledon um is that the closest you can get to a sports question dad <laughs> yes see, see Dan actually like the World Cup is a team sport and Wimbledon's an individual sport no I mean the trophies oh the, tro- oh, the trophies yeah, yeah oh Wimbledon hands down definitely they see the woman's um trophy it's this big massive gold and silver plate and that would take someone's head off could I also state that maybe this is time for a Love Island intervention <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I just don't get it no 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 see I was exactly the same but a year then ago, you had a lobotomy. A year ago, I went to stay with a friend of mine to watch Wimbledon. I went to see uh, Wimbledon live. I stayed with a friend who was watching Love Island, and I was like, "I'm not going to watch this. I'm not that kind of person." And she was like, "Hazel, you can either go upstairs in your room, be by yourself, or you can watch this." <laughs> so I was like, "All right, okay." The perfect host. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh, who's that? Oh, what? What? Why is that? Why are they being mean to each other?" And then I just got into it. So you know, there's time for you all. Obviously, Hazel will know this, but the only thing of interest on Love Island is Danny Dyer's daughter is on it. <laughs> yes. um, and Danny Dyer. Danny Dyer, but with an eye, <laughs> yes. She's lovely. She's like one of the loveliest people in the world. Good for her. <laughs> her dad's a twat. <laughs> anyway. Um, no, I... got, you've got to say that word again for emphasis. Twat. There you go. <laughs> References. I have started watching something in the last few, few days, though, because I was told I wasn't a proper nerd until I've seen it. So um, it's nothing new, but I've never seen Friday Night Lights. I, too, am not a proper nerd, then. I have also never seen Friday Night I've also Night never Lights. seen it. Okay, well, uh, I would recommend you get into it. So it's, um, it's not the film, uh, which came out in 2004 with Billy Bob Thornton. It's a TV series, came out in 2006. It's an American football team that is um, in rural Texas. And the head coach is a guy called Eric Carter, who's played by Kyle Chandler. And the story is about him kind of stepping up to the plate, not the Wimbledon plate, another one. Shame. And his star quarterback gets paralysed in the first episode. So the series is about how they can win the state championship against the odds. Was he paralysed because he saw his cousin having sex with his sister and then was pushed out of a window? Um, I think it's a different tone to different Game tone, of Thrones, okay. yeah. Um, unless, I mean, I haven't seen many episodes, you never know. Can he see the future? <laughs> no. 
Is he alright though? Do they just forget about him and focus on winning? Or do they look after the quarterback? I don't know. I'm going to have to watch it to find out. Sorry. So, um, yeah, we'll see. But it does have a, uh, a West Wing crossover. W.G. Snuffy Walden does the music, so you might like it, Dan. I was always intrigued by that name. Mm. Where does the Snuffy I did know, come from? I did know this. The Snuffy's not his That's real name, name, but I, I forgot. Was he not was. Big Bird's invisible friend on Sesame Street? That's Snuffleupagus. <laughs> <laughs> ah, now it makes sense. That explains yeah. the end credit music on the West Wing. The scenes feel very, very natural, and it's because they don't do uh, much rehearsals. They only have three cameras, and they just shoot, so a lot of it is improvised. And it does feel very real because of that. And it's a very character-driven show, so I would recommend it. I've seen the film a long time ago. And I remember having no interest in the film. For the benefit of our listeners, there was a cat. He tried to escape. He has been caught. We keep cats prisoner during the podcast to entertain us. Uh, It's made a fight for freedom. Interestingly, the god of podcasts does demand the sacrifice of a cat before each recording. (laughs) Yeah, this is a new... We're running short on cats. Yeah, we're, we're like... London, having eaten all the provincial cats in the local area. Do the listeners know that my cats are called Josh and Sam after the West Wing characters? They do now. <laughs> and not a single one of them is surprised. <laughs> why does why is one of your cats not named WG Snuffy Walden? Ah, that was a mistake. Sam should, is definitely more of a Toby, though. We named them uh, before we got to know their personalities. And Sam's like really quite held back and uh, a bit of a dick. So, Do they do a walk and purr around the flat? <laughs> anyway yeah friday night lights is my recommendation (laughs) my recommendation is cargo i often try to pick the interesting rather than maybe the truly great i like a blockbuster but i also like something that is a bit different to the norm as that's often a bit more fulfilling and a bit more interesting this movie started as a seven minute short and then got expanded out into a feature which is (laughs) Sam, stop being a twat. (laughs) He's now dismantling all of the microphones, just like Sam would. And this is why we sacrifice them. (laughs) Do you remember that episode of The West Wing where President Bartlett was trying to give a big speech and Sam just kept jumping up into his lap? (laughs) And in the end, they had to distract him with a, a tin of tuna. It's an odd sort of zombie movie. It's set in a lush outback area of Australia. It feels a bit like Nicholas Rogue's walkabout in that sort of openness and the way they're travelling from place to place all the way around it. Martin Freeman plays his usual defendable role, but most of the interest comes from the way he's left to protect his child and the secondary characters. He has to decide what should happen to his child as the virus he's fighting inevitably overtakes him. He only has two days and he has like a timer watch on his wrist that tells him how long he has before he turns into a zombie. He has to decide whether to leave his child in relative safety with someone who it then turns out is a hideous racist using the local Aborigines in cages as bait for the zombies. It's not the sort of movie to watch for zombie attacks. It's much more about the human choices and emotions than it is about scares and tension. It's available now on Netflix and it's worth checking out if that appeals. Is this the film with Tim from The Office in? If you mean Martin Freeman, yes. (laughs) No, I mean Tim from The Office. (laughs) Yeah, I can second the recommendation. We watched Cargo a week or two after it came out and really liked it. Great cinematography. Martin Freeman's probably the best I've seen him acting-wise. I thought he was really good in it. And the troop of babies they had playing his daughter were all really good for the amount of screen time that Freeman's character's daughter gets. All of those babies did a really good acting job. 
It seems with Netflix, it's the ones that they just put on with no fanfare seem to be better and much more interesting than the ones that they're really pushing because they had a terrible run with sci-fi films, obviously, early in the year. But they have some really, really interesting stuff that gets lost. Is Netflix so big that they can just chuck stuff on there now and enough people watch it to make it worthwhile? And how many other things are we missing? Well, there was that film came out a couple of weeks ago with Gary Oldman playing an evil Alexa that had terrible reviews, but it being on Netflix was the first I'd heard of it, so mm-hmm. maybe. There was a film that was fucking awful. Oh, man, what was it called? With uh, Tom Hanks. Uh, the Circle. Oh, God, that was two hours of... Uh, that was a one that wasn't necessarily a Netflix original. It got a cinema release in the US and did so poorly that they just shoved it on Netflix over here because they knew nobody would go to see it. Mm. And it's a shame because I had read the book of The Circle earlier that year and really enjoyed it. The film is not good. Mm. But it's a hell of a cast. There's Tom Hanks in there. There's Karen Gillan. John Boyega's in there. Patton Oswald, Emma Watson. Mm, yeah. There was no reason why it shouldn't have worked, but it really didn't. Today's episode is sponsored by MS Millionaire Mini Bites and Chocolate and Orange Bits. MS is doing very well with the waistcoat effect. So they should give us money. This is the Gareth Southgate waistcoat. Gareth Southgate. um, Everyone's realised that he is a DILF. A DILF? What what, what is a DILF? Dad. (laughs) Dad, I'd like to fondle. I see. Football. (laughs) Yeah. All because of the M&S waistcoat. Uh, Let let it be known that I introduced waistcoats to our staff uniform several months before the World Cup and I'm therefore ahead of the curve on this one. And you're fighting women off of a shitty step. (laughs) It's now time for Film Buff or Film Bluff. This is a quiz that we invented, didn't we? We invented it, right? <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Yes, yeah. If anyone's ever seen the TV show, Would I Lie to You? Um, we had a time machine and we went back in time before Lie. the show started. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is where we've all got three pieces of entertainment trivia, but one of them is completely fake because we've made them up. So we've got to work out which one is the bluff. Dan, do you want to go first? Yes, yes I would. For those um, who are interested, this follows a 10-minute off-mic discussion in which Peter and Dan fought to the death over who was going to go first. And Peter is now dead. Yes. (laughs) My buff or bluff this episode is about the behaviour of Marlon Brando. Because the, the more I read about Brando and how he acted on set, the more interesting he becomes to me. So, two of these are true, one is false. Number one. In The Godfather, Don Corleone's cat would purr so loudly during scenes, it drowned out Brando's dialogue. Number two. Brando's character in The Island of Dr. Moreau inspired Mini-Me from Austin Powers. (laughs) And number three. When 20th Century Fox signed him to a movie he hated the script for, Brando fled the country to avoid making it. Now, number two, I think maybe a... a a trick question because I know that Mini-Me in the Austin Powers films was inspired by Marlon Brando in The Island of Dr. Moreau having his own Mini-Me. He had like a little miniature clone of himself. So that much is true, but it wasn't technically inspired by Brando's character. 
So how pedantic are we being here on the... Not that pedantic. Not that pedantic. In that case... Um, <laughs> so we're going with that one is true. In that case, that is true. And going off on a tangent, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a documentary about the making of the island of Dr. Moreau, mm-hmm. and it is absolutely fascinating. Richard Stanley, who was the director, got fired after about four days and then sneaked back onto the set wearing a costume of one of the monsters to watch what was going on. And it's possibly one of the most sort of troubled productions ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Val Kilmer being a twat, Marlon Brando oh, yeah. <laughs> being even more of a twat. We can say Marlon Brando is a twat because he's dead. The third one, you don't name the film? You just, I, just a I do not name cent- the film. 20th Century, 20th Century Fox, Fox film. Was I, the film ever made? Like, Did they re-import him and make him make it? Or The film was made. Was it? Oh, well, one of his last films was uh, Don Juan with uh, Johnny Depp. I just mm-hmm. feel like I've heard that somewhere that he went off and then couldn't be tracked down. I know when he made the score with Edward Norton and Robert De Niro, he was overweight at the time and he didn't want to be filmed in full length. Yeah. So he refused to wear trousers on set so that the director was forced to film him from the waist up. Uh, The director was Frank Oz as well and apparently he would only take direction if Frank Oz did his Miss Piggy voice. And then the purring, the cat purring, was that, did you just do that today, inspired by my cats? I did not. this is Don Corleone's cat in the very, very famous scene in The Godfather. Not one that's well known for Brando's behind-the-scenes behaviour. What were the implications for the cat? You'll find out when you find out whether it's true or false. Mm. I haven't heard that story. No, I haven't. I Brando does have a very quiet voice, doesn't he? Through there, oh, through that. Comes to me in my wedding day and... Fuck off, cat! I think we'd remember that in the film. I've read a lot about The Godfather, and I've never heard that story. Me neither. So I, I believe the second two, so I'm going to go with the cat being the bluff. I also think the cat is the bluff. I'm going to pick the third one, uh, that he left the country. Peter is correct. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the, the cat was a stray that Francis Ford Coppola found running around the studio and thought it was adorable, so put it in the film. It loved the attention it was getting so much by being on set on Josh Brando's lap. Josh was about lap. to crawl onto your neck, by the way. Just carry on, but you know. You might get attacked at any moment. <laughs> While I mollify this cat, the cat in The Godfather loved the attention so much it would just purr really, really loudly and they couldn't hear Brando's dialogue because he does speak quietly. And at one stage they were going to consider just having subtitles, but the sound guys managed to find a way to drown out the purring and turn Brando up so you could hear him over the cat. It's a stuffed cat in some shots, isn't that? Is that related? I hope how not. They, how they managed to stop it purring. Yeah. I think it's not, that's a lie. It's a very happy <laughs> cat. And in The Island of Dr. Moreau, Brando told the director, Richard Stanley, that he would not perform unless a little person he had befriended <laughs> appeared next to him in all his scenes. <laughs> uh, that led to the inspiration for Mini-Me. Brando also wore an ice bucket on his head in one scene and had his lines fed to him by earpiece because he didn't bother learning them. I always thought Mini-Me was probably based on the, the man with the golden gun, the Vilches, the little sidekick there. I thought that might have been the reason for it. There's probably a few influences that my eyes drew from. And the false one was the film that he fled the country for. Fox did sign him up to a script that he hated, but instead of fleeing the country, he bought a fake moustache and pretended to be a UN diplomat to try and escape his apartment <laughs> unnoticed. He was tracked down by a US marshal and threatened with a lawsuit so he agreed to make a different film with Fox. But on set, 
if he didn't like a line, he'd just read it in a ridiculous accent and refuse to do a second take. (laughs) And he'd blast fire hoses at the extras between takes. Oh my God. Brando. (laughs) Have you heard the story about Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor and Michael Jackson all fleeing New York after 9-11 in a car together? No. They made a film of that on Sky, didn't they? It got pulled. Did it? Yeah, Yeah. because Joseph Fiennes played Michael Jackson. And there was accusations of whitewashing, having a white actor play Michael Jackson. So if they had a black actor, they would then have to have lightened the skin to match Jackson's condition, which would have been surely something they'd have got complaints about. Yeah, I I think really there's there's no good way of doing this, is there? (laughs) We're stepping into a moral minefield here. (laughs) Peter, would you like to do your film buff now? Sure. Mm. Mine is about Star Tours. It's my favourite thing in the world. Really? Oh, cool. (laughs) The Star Tours ride at Disneyland. It's a motion ride based on the Star Wars movies, featuring a specially shot movie from ILM running in sync with a military-grade motion simulator and an animatronic pilot in front of you as well. Captain Rex. (laughs) It was the first Disney attraction to be based around a non-Disney property. It was originally planned to be themed around 1982's Tron, but it became clear that wasn't going to be a big enough hit to justify it, as the cost grew to around $50 million to develop it. Tron made $33 million in the US, whereas Star Wars made $460 million. Secondly, the voice of the pilot, RX-24, is Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman. Which is ironic, because I was caught masturbating in the ride. (laughs) 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 I should point out that Paul Rubens got prosecuted for that in the cinema. (laughs) <laughs> i just leave it with no contact <laughs> And thirdly, the ride was updated in around 2011 to The Adventure Continues And the queue area for the newly updated version uses video silhouettes of the 501st Legion Which are Star Wars fans who have their own Stormtrooper outfits So, the three facts to recap First, that it was originally going to be based on Tron Secondly, that the voice of the pilot is Paul Rubens And thirdly that it uses silhouettes of Star Wars fans in costume on the ride entry. I know the Paul Rubens thing is true, because I do love Star Tours. It is my happy place. If I were ever it was to feel... my happy place as well. Yes, thank you, John. <laughs> yeah. uh, it just fills me with joy to go on that ride and hear the Star Wars music and pretend you're in the galaxy flying through meteors and accidentally turning up in the Death Star trench run and as a youngling, it's the closest thing I had to being in Star Wars, and I just love it. But I do know that Paul Rubens was Captain Rex in the US version of the ride in Disneyland Paris, the one I've been on. He's obviously speaking French, and I don't think that's Paul Rubens. I haven't been back since they updated it. It kind of makes me sad in a way, because I like the old school practical feel of it. I'm sure the new version's really, really good. I know that you can go to different places The old one just was supposed to take you to Endor, but you end up taking a wrong turn when you go out of your cargo bay and you get caught in the war between the rebels and the Empire. You never make it to Endor. But in the new one, you can go to Crate, you can go to Naboo, you can go to all sorts of different planets from the prequels, the sequels and the originals. It's random, isn't it? Yeah, you don't know which one you're going to go to. I'm sure I'd still love it, but I'm kind of sad that the old one isn't around anymore always takes them a while to replace the stuff in Paris, so I kind of hoped they'd forget about it there. They only did it two years ago. Which is a shame. I would reckon the Tron one isn't true, because I'm sure Star Tours came about as a Disney and George Lucas kind of arrangement, 
as in we want some some of your lovely intellectual property, George. What have you got for us? There's, there's Indiana Jones as well, isn't there? Yeah, there whereas is Tron now, wasn't in Lucasfilm. Like I say, that was the first one which relied on an outside property. There's also the Muppets before Disney bought the Muppets as well. I think I've not heard the Tron thing. I know the Paul Rubens thing is correct. I have no idea about the fan thing. Now, I think uh, Disneyland Shanghai has got a Tron light cycle ride. Really? But based on Tron Legacy. I don't know whether that film was really big in China or whether they were just developing it and wanted something that wasn't reliant on a film that maybe wasn't that big in China and could be enjoyed separately to that. I think the kind of nowadays certainly work on the rides simultaneously to the film or before the film because there's a Waterworld stunt show, isn't there? And I can can only imagine yeah. they thought Waterworld was going to be much bigger than it turned out. It's actually be. still running there. That's still, yeah. yeah. in Universal Hollywood. Hmm. I will report back in September. So, yeah, I'm going to go with Tron. I'm going to go with Tron. Hazel? This is not my area of expertise. I know that the Paul Rubens thing is true, just because I, I've heard that about Paul Rubens, but I wouldn't know about the other, so I'll go for the third one, just to cover our bases. Okay. The false one is Tron. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that they decided to do a thing about Star Wars. It was actually something they were planning to do around the Black Hole, the Disney movie. And when that didn't perform very well in the cinemas, they looked around for something else to theme it around and chose Star Wars. Which obviously paid off very well for them. Can we all go to Disneyland and go and start us, except John? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's sit next to John in a cinema or on a ride. (laughs) They have a splash alert now. Okay, um, my film bluff or film bluff is celebrity endorsements and products, what they have advertised. As we well know, particularly in Japan and other far eastern countries, celebrities advertise products that they wouldn't necessarily do over here for the easy books. So I have three products, two of which are real, one of which I have made up. Product number one, the Justin Bieber singing toothbrush. This is a a toothbrush designed to help children brush their teeth for the correct amount of time. So you can put Justin Bieber in your mouth or a Justin Bieber (laughs) shaped toothbrush, push a button and he sings one of his popular hits. And when he is finished, you know, you brush your teeth for the correct amount of time. Number two, Quentin Tarantino endorsed a condom in Japan called Pulp Frictionless. This is the one. Yeah. <laughs> um, a easy, extra lubricated condom. Obviously, I think the name came after the Tarantino endorsement, but it's actually got his face on the... Oh, John. On the foil. <laughs> Do you know what they call it in France? <laughs> so, obviously, you know, if, if you're getting it on, you get to look at a little picture of Quentin Tarantino, give it a thumbs Too up. Too much on detail. The, on, on the foil. Um, the last one is the Kiss Casket. If you are a big KISS fan, you can get a coffin which has the KISS logo on it and the flames down the side, specially customly made so you can be buried in a casket surrounded by your favourite band forever. Mm-hmm. I've seen images of the KISS I'm casket. Sure yeah. I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. And I know the toothbrush one is true. I, I, I didn't know if it was Justin Bieber, but I know that there was this initiative to get KISS brush their teeth for longer. And the second one was a bad pun. The second so. one is true. Awful. The second one was obvious John at work. <laughs> well, it's obviously... You know, pulp frictionless. Pulp frictionless. It's, obviously, it was a pun because it was created... How does that translate? 
<laughs> Good point. In, well, if you've seen the Japanese post of a Pulp Fiction, you'll see it still has how, Pulp Fiction. How do they sell that? Because surely friction is good? Well, no, too much friction is bad. So um, yeah. it's a way of sort of softening the experience, but they, they withdrew it from sale. Softening was, it, the experience it, is not what I'm looking for with condom. <laughs> um, it was also sold as a cure for premature ejaculation because if you're about to go in, there's nothing guaranteed to calm you down more. Then Quentin Tarantino's face staring at you. Also, the fact that we're recording this in Hazel's flat, which has a big poster of Pulp Fiction on the wall, <laughs> might also have given you the idea. If I had made it up, which I haven't necessarily, <laughs> I may have come up with the idea for whatever the fake one was whilst I was walking over here. Yeah, Pulp Friction. Let's yep, yep, yep. That is that is. <laughs> I don't know if it needs to continue, do I? <laughs> My film buff or film bluff is about The Matrix. So number one, for the scene where Neo wakes up in a pod, Keanu Reeves lost 15 pounds and shaved his entire body in order to give him a more emaciated look. Number two, the film is known for popularising the visual effect known as bullet time, which allows a shot to progress in slow motion whilst the camera appears to move through the scene at normal speed and it is quite complicated. It incorporates something called temporal motion, the claimed inventor of which, Neil Twinstown, unsuccessfully sued the Wachowskis, saying he invented the technique first. And finally, in the first 45 minutes of the film, Neo has 80 lines. 44 of these lines are questions, so just over half of his total dialogue. On average, he's asking one question per minute. And how many of them are, whoa? (laughs) Whoa. Bullet time basically works if you have like say, 100 cameras in a row, and you fire them off one after the other, and the cameras are all changing position around the action that's happening, and you're building a sequence of something happening in the middle. But it's actually not that unrelated to what Edward Moyridge did in the very sort of early days of cinema, trying to get a horse animating so that people could work out how the legs work. Mm-hmm. And they did that with a series of trip wires, each of which trips a separate camera as the horse mm-hmm. travels past it. So actually, the technique's almost the same. Is that not how they proved that all four feet on a horse... Yes. Do leave the ground at the same that time. Is, yeah. Yes. I'm going to go with this the bullet time one as being true. Okay. Why did he shave his entire body? Because he is. So it's getting it's that birthing scene where he yeah. comes out of the pod and he's in like the real world for the first time. So he just wanted to look more new, I guess. Did he do the, like a full backsack and crack? <laughs> he wasn't looking that closely, but uh, yeah, he shaved his whole body. Well, he is completely hairless in that scene from what you see. But would that be a decision he would make or would it not be something that he had to do because of the script? And how long would production have to stop until he grew it all back? It was at the very end of the production. Ah, I think that this is a bluff because I'm pretty sure that Keanu Reeves is actually completely hairless in real life. And I remember reading somewhere that they had to put a wig on him for all his other roles. (laughs) So he actually took two hours less in makeup for that scene than he, he did for the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. So he didn't need to shave his back. Yeah. Okay. Oh. I'm with John on that one because it just sounds so plausible. What was the third one? In the first 45 minutes of the film, Neo has 80 lines. 44 of these lines are questions. So he, on average, asks a question every single minute. He does ask a lot of questions at the beginning. Who am I? Who are you? Is that a spoon? Is that a spoon? Yeah. I'm going to say the first one's made up. The one the... about being shaved. Did I tell you about the time I paid to have sex with Cadder Reeves? <laughs> No, you didn't. And uh, I went for a little cuddle afterwards. He went, no, there is no spoon. (laughs) (laughs) True (laughs) stuff. 
I was on the Disneyland ride at the time. <laughs> I think that's a bluff. I, I think it's... The questions. The questions, I think, I think you might just change the figures in an attempt to fool us. In an unimaginative bluff. In a, Yes. Seconded. <gasps> it's the questions. I didn't never knew you thought that Lola of me. It makes me sad. Especially Not in the unimaginative. I think that's a good imaginative <laughs> trick bluff. And why does that make you particularly sad, Hazel? Because they think I can't do maths. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cue for you to say because it was the bluff. <laughs> Oh, uh, no, that's completely true. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to change my answer. Fuck off, Dan. (laughs) I think that is definitely not the last one. What? It's definitely, that's definitely true. The one about the questions. The one I just told you That is definitely true, yeah. (laughs) And this isn't being edited like the last one where you made me (laughs) sound like, it sound like I was saying Black Panther was going to (laughs) flop. Definitely... Terrible editing there. Do we get another girl then? Because I've already... Can I pick you want to choose, choose between one choose and two? Choose between one and two, yeah. I think number two is the lie. I think he left a little strip of hair somewhere. Number, that was number one. Number one is the lie then. It didn't completely shave. Okay. Dan? Red pill. <laughs> Peter? Um, I already picked number one. Number one. You're all wrong. He did shave his entire body and head so that he could look more emaciated and he lost 15 pounds for it. The bluff is the second one. I had to um, do it for a tenner. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> <laughs> the second one, I have. I made the name up, Neil Twinstown, whatever it was. Yeah, um, yeah they, were, they were never sued for bullet time. That was their own thing. You gullible, mm. gullible, gullible lot. Actually, the name did help sell it as plausible. Yeah, it did. That was very imaginative. I take it all back. (laughs) (laughs) It's time now for Shameful Gap. In this segment of the show, when one of us has not seen a famous nerdy film, they have to own up and watch the film for the very first time and then come to the podcast to talk about it. So who has got a shameful gap this time? Uh, It is me. And what is your shameful gap, John? I've never seen the bootleg video of Keanu Reeves shaving himself. <laughs> Shame? <laughs> I have never seen True Lies. Shame. Shame. Mr. Tasker's office. Hi, it's Helen. Is he in? How is he in a sales meeting, Mrs. Tasker? It's not like he's saving the world or anything. I see this is the problem with terrorists. <laughs> Inconsiderate when it comes to people's schedules. Have you seen it, Daniel? No. (laughs) So, Dan, you've never seen it. Would you like to tell me what the plot of the film is? Yes. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Detective Richard True, who (laughs) uncovers a conspiracy involving Jamie Lee Curtis. He teams up to take down the government of a fictional Eastern European nation and they have been spreading lies about high-up government officials in America. Also, there's a robot and maybe aliens. Correct. (laughs) Um, I'm going to talk about the original rather than the remake, though. So this is a James Cameron film from the mid-90s. I think it's in between Terminator 2 and Titanic. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a CIA agent who masquerades as a computer salesman by day. 
including to his wife, who has no idea he is secretly an American spy. His accent is never commented on. I don't know how he managed to become a computer salesman stroke American spy with a German accent, but he... Austrian. Austrian, German... I was going to go for Teutonic, but I couldn't remember how to do that. <laughs> it's a Teutonic. Yes, he has a Teutonic accent. Essentially, there are some dubiously racially stereotyped terrorists who have got hold of some nuclear weapons. They are working for Tia Carrera, who did this around the time of Wayne's World. If she was a babe, she would be Babe Ham Lincoln, to quote the film. About the same time, he begins to suspect his wife is having an affair with a character brilliantly played by Bill Paxton, who is far and away the, mm. the best yeah. thing in the film. Easily. We then forget about the terrorist for an hour while he tries to entrap his wife and then decides to give his wife a sexy adventure that seems to involve Jamie Lee Curtis stripping down to her pants and gyrating around on the screen for five minutes, <laughs> which, whilst pleasant on the eyes, is slightly, again, dated, sexually mm. dubious. It's- it's really awkward to watch watching essentially putting his wife through this for kicks and kind of forcing himself on her with her not knowing it's him. The real world of the terrorists then collides. Jim Lee Curtis finds out her husband's a spy. Uh, some nuclear missiles appear. There's a big exciting action sequence. And then at the end, they have a tango. Oh, and there's a bit where he rides a horse into yeah. a lift. Why? Um, he is chasing someone in a motorbike around the city. The only thing he can find is a horse. So you have a horse versus motorbike, which starts off outdoors, then goes into what looks a little bit... I mean, it's a hotel, but I had flashbacks to the Last Jedi casino chase scene. And they end up in lifts where they can see each other very slowly going up. And then the horse devised the laws of physics and manages to turn around and come out of the lift. Did you know that uh, one of the boom mics fell on the horse whilst Arnie was on top of it? So, and it was near a 90 foot drop. So the horse kind of bolted and uh, Schwarzenegger fell off, but he was caught by a stunt person and mm, he saved his life. He saved his life and he said, This is why I'll always love stunt people. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. I sounded probably a bit down in the description there. I enjoyed it, but I think it's minor Cameron. It's not Aliens or the Terminator. Yeah. Or Titanic. Oh, it's better. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Avatar? Uh, yeah, okay. It's, it's, it's the, amongst the better James Cameron films. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the best James Cameron film of the last 25 years, of which I think he's only done three, probably, hasn't he? Titanic, Avatar. And True Lies. True yeah. Lies is yeah. 24 years old now. Would that be right? So, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Mid 90s, isn't it? Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, a very, very young Elijah Dushku, isn't yeah, it? She's well, 12. 12, yeah. Mm-hmm. And did not have a good time on set. Did she not? No, she came out last year and accused the stunt coordinator, Joel Kramer, of molesting her in a hotel room. And I won't go into the details of what he did, but it was despicable. Um, so hopefully he's not working in Hollywood anymore. Ooh. Cameron said he'd never worked with him again, but given that he's only done <laughs> two films since, since I'm not yeah. entirely surprising. <laughs> mm. She's not brilliant in it, to be honest, although I feel bad saying that now. But the big finale involves her and there's not enough of her early in the film for us to have any sort of emotional attachment to her other than her being like Annie's daughter. Some good action sequences. I think the horse and the motorbike is the highlight. Helicopter crashing into the side of the building. There's a lot of stunt work on the Harrier. The Harrier is still one of my favourite aircraft. I had a, a thing with the Harrier bit that you could very clearly see when it was a stunt double 
you could very clearly see when you had like a quarter of a Harrier in shots, probably on a gimbal much lower than it looked without. No, actually, they, the, had, they had an entire point. model Harrier on a mm. on a sort of like a flight simulator thing, yeah. right on the top of a skyscraper. Really? If you watch the making of, oh, yeah. maybe a bit been a little bit unfair on yeah. it then. And then some of it was done green screen as mm-hmm. well. But I just couldn't get over the way that Jamie Lee Curtis was treated in it, and I had a real problem with that. I think it's the most famous scene in the film where they're in the hotel room and he's making a strip and dance for him and she doesn't know that it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then he makes a line of bed and close her eyes and kisses her and it's just it's fucking creepy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She presents a, a behind-the-scenes making of, like a 20-minute version, it's on YouTube, and she knew what she was getting into. She doesn't mm-hmm. kind of go and say, "There's like this is a different type of action movie. No, she's like, this is big, bold, fun, and yeah, it's enjoyable, yeah. but she doesn't kind of say it's multi-layered. I mean, yeah. she's brilliant in it. Mm. Uh, to what extent would she have had the power to go to James Cameron and say, I'm not so keen on this well, bit? Well, it was originally going to be nude, and she ended up keeping her clothes on instead, but that might have been to help reduce the creepiness factor. Mm. Apparently it's her own underwear as well, according to something <laughs> I was reading. I mean, she's, she's got all bits out in other films. Famously, uh, as, a, as, a, as a younger boy, my trading copy of Trading Places. Places might have gone a bit wavy during one bit of the film. <laughs> um but there's a scene where she's been interrogated by Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he's using a voice disguiser. Mm. And there's you can see the gulfing acting talent between Jamie Lee Curtis emoting and crying and Arnold Schwarzenegger just with a vague look of confusion <laughs> on his face. Presumably haven't seen the, the French original. I've never seen it, no. Yeah, it's uh, La Totale, I think it's called, mm-hmm. which is about three years earlier. And there's quite a good video on YouTube for about 20 minutes or so, which compares the French version and True Lies. So you can see how very, very similar a load of the scenes are, including the one you're talking about. Bill Paxson's character is like a reversal of Arnie's. So Arnie is a spy pretending to be a salesman, and Bill Paxson's character is a salesman pretending to be a spy. So they're like a mirror of each other. Apparently they were going to make a sequel at some point, mm-hmm. and then 9-11 happened, yep. and that put the kibosh on it. Yeah, James Cameron said that terrorism was not to be made lightly of anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a TV show in development. I did it was know. announced in 2017. In my head, I was getting mixed up with Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yes, there's, I, very, mm. there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. Because yeah. in, in my memory, having not seen it, but my memory of, sort of the synopsis and everything was that Jamie Lee Curtis was a spy as well. Mm. But obviously, that that's how that's, that's how we end up. Really, I watched yeah. I watched that again about six months ago. I think True Lies is by far the better film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with you actually. Even though it's got Brad Pitt, the Mighty Oak Brad Pitt, I uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'd enjoy True yeah. Lies more. Mr. and Mrs. Smith's not a good film. Broke up her marriage. Poor Jennifer Aniston <laughs> sat there watching Mr. and Mrs. Smith on DVD, crying into her hot new husband. <laughs> Oh, no, they divorced. Yeah, they, they did. Divorce. They're, they're now divorced, yeah. Justin Thoreau. Oh, I found that Roy Orbison died this morning. I didn't know. Was that? Did you do it? I didn't. <laughs> How long ago did he machine. die? 20 odd years ago, apparently. So. I'll tell you about John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, At least we still have Bowie. <sighs> Too soon. The humour, it didn't work for me either. I probably would have preferred it as a straight action film. And it was 90% a straight action. Bill Paxton, as a comedy character, is brilliant. And the humour with Bill Paxton is brilliant. But some of the humour with the terrorists, like where he's recording the video and then the batteries are running out on the camera, just felt really, really clunky. 
and Arnie having a chat with his horse. Which felt, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I thought it worked um, between him and Tom Arnold worked mm-hmm. quite nicely. They seemed to have yeah. a decent relationship. That was fun. So he's the normal one now, isn't he, in, that, in the Tom and Roseanne relationship? Mm. What was the tagline for the film again? That was quite funny, I remember. When he said, I do, he didn't say what he did. Mm. Ah, very good. Mm. <laughs> so, Dan, what do you think? Are you going to watch this film? I'll be honest, you haven't really sold it to me. I feel like I've undersold it. I've, I've concentrated on the negatives, but it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's almost a throwback to the 80s action movies, sort of something. If you like your commandos, that kind of film, mm-hmm. it's that, but with a bit more intelligence behind it. Well, that sounds good. I'd watch that. Um, have you seen Last Action Hero? No. Uh, no. I've, I've got a bit of a 90s Arnie vacancy. Gap. I was going <laughs> to say gap. <laughs> yeah. You want um, 90s Arnie to fill your shameful gap. Which is why I didn't say gap. <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't, haven't seen Last Action Hero. I haven't seen True Lies don't know if I've seen Twins, if that was in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. But junior? Junior I have mm. seen. I haven't yeah. seen Junior. Have you That's not? About the only one I haven't seen. Yeah. Uh, and in, Emma Thompson's worth it. Yeah. And in all of these films, his accent is always accepted. Even in Jingle All The Way, where he's just a mild-mannered mm-hmm. sales guy from America. There's no comment. I suppose if everybody in the film knew him, there wouldn't be a comment, but... Do you know what I've not seen in a long time? Speaking of Arnie's accent, do you remember Red Heat, where he played the Russian... <laughs> cop that's uh that's probably similar quite similar tonally it was paul verhoeven wasn't it or am i making that up don't think it doesn't so. sound like it would be paul verhoeven no. but it's around the same time it's directed by walter hill so this is arnie as a russian cop and james belushi as an american cop and they are forced to team up to fight people after james belushi's partner is killed and um it's every 80s action cliche like, take your generic... That's my mum ringing. <laughs> Should we speak to my mum on cam? Um... Yeah, go for it. Hello, mum. Hello, Johnny. Right, love. I'm yeah, good, yeah. yeah um, you, uh, you, you're live on a podcast at the moment, mum. <laughs> oh, God, sorry. Hello. Hello, Hi, John's mum. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Oh, I'll, talk to you. I'll talk to you later, love. Yeah. What's your favourite Arnold Schwarzenegger film, mum? <laughs> What's my favourite what? Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Kindergarten cop. Kindergarten cop. <laughs> it's a good choice. <laughs> okay, I'll speak to you soon. Yeah. Oh, sorry, love, you didn't have to answer. Oh, I did. I'll see you later. <laughs> okay, bye, okay, mum. Yeah, bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> Kindergarten cop. I think that might be the only one she's seen. I haven't seen that. <laughs> That's a really good one. I, I quite enjoyed that one. Yeah. Is it, it doesn't have a very good reputation, but I enjoy it. Um, Dolph Lundgren Dolph in the sequel, Lundgren. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Who is going to be back for Creed 2? So he is. Mm. Read harder. <laughs> Kindergarten Cop is a really, really weird film in that for 90% of the runtime, it's like this, essentially this family-friendly comedy and then just for 10 minutes at the beginning, the 10 minutes at the end, really R-rated violence. It's a, it's a, it's a film, of, certainly a film of two halves, but the two halves don't go together. That's at a time where it was quite conspicuous in American films. They'd have a lot of violence and almost no swearing you know mm-hmm. it was kind of weird it was like swearing got you this certificate and not shooting someone full of holes which is just crazy i noticed that with true lies um i don't know whether they were going for pg-13 or not but there was a, a lack of swears mm. but also people getting blown to pieces and necks being snapped and a lot of blood there was an odd thing at the end of the 2000s where you could do as much horrible violence as you liked and still get a pg rating as long as there was no blood so there'd be things where people were getting stabbed up mm. and shot all over the place, 
but as long as you didn't see them bleed, it was absolutely fine. Yeah, no so consequences. So where would you rank True Lies on the Arnie scale? Mid-level Arnie. What's the top level the, Arnie? Uh, the top level Arnie Terminator is Terminator. Mm. And what's bottom level Arnie? The bottom Arnie is probably that thing where it was close, sixth day. The sixth day was that an Arnie film where uh, where he flies a helicopter. Yeah, Arnie clones. Yeah, I watched that a couple of years ago, and it would. I really felt if Bruce Willis had been in this, it would be a great film. Mm. But just Arnie's too wooden in it. Can I go for his governorship of California? Yeah, as low <laughs> level Arnie. Yeah, it's it's good. It's just not amazing. Oh, a film I'm really looking forward to is going to be, it's not got Arnie in it, but uh, Skyscraper opens next week, which mm-hmm. I'm going to go and see. I'm just really hoping that's that kind of non-serious, stupid action film that I just mm-hmm. loved through the 90s. Please be diehard. Please be Please diehard. Be diehard. Mm-hmm. Please don't be diehard for. <laughs> five. God, there's a five. Yeah, five's the, five's the worst. Yeah, it's dreadful. Which is the way he shoots himself through, through his shoulder End to of kill four. the... Yeah, it's four. four, yeah. In five, he goes to Russia. Uh-huh. Oh, dear. It's awful. He keeps saying, I'm on vacation, over and over again, like they really want it to be a catchphrase, but it's really <laughs> not a catchphrase. Four's the PG one, isn't it? Or the PG-13 one, so he can't even say his catchphrase. Mm. Yeah, I think the five is like, yippee and, the f- and then a gun fires. Yeah. The worst thing. Kevin Smith pops up in it as a, yes, as a, a hacker. computer hacker. Yeah. They didn't go on, did they? Oh, he was in, he was in something for He was Kevin in Cop Smith. Out, in the Kevin Smith film, and they really, really didn't get on in the making of that. Yeah, Kevin Smith's got a book out, I think, where he talks about the actors he doesn't get on with. Reese Witherspoon is in one Is it a long book? <laughs> uh, I think so, yeah. But uh, yeah, he talks about it on a lot of his, you know, his, uh, his Q&As, and he has a very long story about working with Bruce Willis. And no, they they, they didn't get on. And I think he was really, really upset because he grew up as a massive Bruce Willis fan. And it's a kind of don't meet your heroes kind of mm. thing. What was the reason that he was fired from, what's the action movie where they're all come together? Expendables. Expendables, yeah. I think just because he wanted a shitload of money to be in right. the third one. I think he wanted something like $15 million for a, what was essentially a cameo. Mm. I may have got those, I may have got the figures wrong, but certainly was it like a lot of money for yeah, it's like, a day's work, work a couple of days work, yeah. I think they've got Harrison Ford instead. Yeah, he's yeah. he's in the third one. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a whole strange thing in the third one where they were trying to create a new generation of Expendables and had people like um, Liam Hemsworth, the middle of the Hemsworths, yeah. and yeah. Ronda Rousey and people yeah, like sure. that, none of whom <laughs> were big enough stars to be able to carry the film the way the originals did. But it's not bad, Expendables 3. I quite enjoyed it. We're talking about ratings. If you watch the second one, they shot it as a PG-13 and then there was an outcry. So they did the same thing that they did with Snakes on a Plane where they went back and aired it up, so made it from a PG-13 to an R by putting like lots of CGI blood coming out of people when they got shot <laughs> and lots of F-bombs, but never when anyone's facing uh-huh. the camera. So you'll have the back of someone and they'll be like, fuck you, and then... You never see them swear from forwardly. Through about 15, 20 years of American movies, that's been quite obvious. I always assumed it was so they could change things for TV versions. Mm-hmm. So the swearing is almost always off camera. You rarely see people actually mouth the F word. And Expendables 2, notable for including a Chuck Norris joke said by Chuck Norris. Can you remember the joke? I think he got into a staring contest with a cobra and some days later the cobra died or something like that. I <laughs> It was a highlight of the film. <laughs> not For better sadly, or ill. Not sadly a highlight of the podcast. 
This coming from the man who had a long story about wanking with Keanu Reeves <laughs> in a Disneyland ride wearing a Quentin Tarantino branded condom. But when you put it like that. <laughs> so uh, how many Harriers out of 10 would you give True Lies? Um, seven. That's pretty good. Time for a brand new feature, which we have cleverly called The Born Identity, where we all talk about films from the year that we were created. First up is Dan. Dan, what year were you born? 1987. Shame. Uh, What film would you like to talk about from 1987? It was really hard to choose because it turns out that there are loads of good films that came out in 1987. There's The Running Man. Predator came out, another Arnie classic. There's Catherine Bigelow's first film, Near Dark. Loads and loads of really good choices, but I went with Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, Mm. which was his first film since The Shining, seven years previously, and his last film for another 12 years until he made his last film, Eyes Wide Shut. Slacker. Yeah. You little scumbag! I got your name! I got your ass! You will not laugh! You will not cry! You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Now get up. Get on your feet. You had best unfuck yourself or I will unscrew your head and shit down your neck. It follows a platoon of US Marines through their boot camp training and then in the Vietnam War. And the title refers to a full metal jacket bullet, which usually consists of a soft core light lead encased in a shell of harder metal, which is probably a metaphor. Hard shell outside, softer inside. Yeah. The title was originally The Short Timers, based on a novel by Gustav Hasford, but Kubrick changed it after reading a gun catalogue and seeing the phrase Full Metal Jacket. Kubrick only met Hasford once at a dinner party at his house with the screenwriter Michael Hare, and during dinner he passed her a note saying, I cannot deal with this man. <laughs> and uh, they never met again. It was the 23rd highest grossing film of 1987. Okay. Uh, got Kubrick his final Oscar nomination, which was his 13th overall. Did he ever win an Oscar? I'm not sure. I don't remember him winning one. So that must be up there with, um, like, Hitchcock got a Lifetime Achievement Oscar but never got one for film. Um, and I think, you know, Scorsese only got one fairly recently for a film that was nowhere near as good as the ones he should have won Oscars for. Hazel's checking. I am checking. I can't find a Best Director Oscar win. I think he might have got maybe a Best Film for Spartacus as a producer. Maybe a screenplay? Yeah, they're mostly screenplays. Um, he got nominated for Clockwork Orange. There was uh, things like Best Visual Effects for 2001. That was him himself. No, I wouldn't think so. It's Douglas Trumbull. He got nominated for Best Director for that as well. He was nominated for Best Director four times. Doctor Strangelove, 2001, uh, A Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon. But he never won an award for directing. That's a shocking omission. Well, he shot all the full metal jacket in England. Originally, there was a plastic replica jungle that was flown in from California to substitute for Vietnam. But on seeing it, Kubrick apparently said, I don't like it, get rid of it. So instead, they used 200 imported palm trees from Spain and 100,000 plastic tropical plants that they brought from Hong Kong. And one location was the disused Becton Gasworks, which he partially demolished in certain places to make it look the way he wanted. The star Matthew Modine described that location as very difficult because the air and the ground was full of asbestos and all sorts of other chemicals. So it was quite a toxic environment to work in. Mm. Kubrick did employ his daughter Vivian to shoot 18 hours of footage for a behind-the-scenes documentary, but it was never released. Her documentary on The Shining is very good. 
She also did the score under an alias. Uh, during the filming, a family of rabbits was accidentally killed, and Kubrick was so upset he cancelled work for the rest of the day. And he was typically Kubrickian in how many takes he would do. There's a, a scene in the boot camp where Vincent D'Onofrio's character has a jam donut, and they did that scene with a donut. I think he's forced to eat it 37 times. And there's one scene in the Vietnam section where two of the characters die and they have to try and make their way over a wall. And they shot that one little sequence for a month. And at one point, Adam Baldwin got tired of the constant retakes because he'd signed up for three months and it was actually close to a year that they shot for. After another request for a recut, asked, what does this guy want from us? And Kubrick apparently called out, how about better acting? <laughs> <laughs> but probably the most memorable performance is Ali Ermi, who oh, was a real actor. drill instructor in the Vietnam era and basically showed Kubrick how an instructor breaks down new recruits' individuality. Mm. Uh, Died a couple of months ago. Yeah. He did. I think he's the only actor that was ever allowed to improvise on a Kubrick set. Ah, that is a popular myth. Oh. So Kubrick reckoned in an interview that Ermi wrote about 50% of his own dialogue, especially the insults. But what happened was after he got the part, he rewrote the role and sent Kubrick between 150 and 250 pages of notes with all the possible insults and Kubrick mm. put them in the script. So he came up with most of his own lines, but he didn't improvise them on the day. Okay. It's a small part, but he's in my favourite film, Seven, as the police oh. chief. I also like when he kind of reprises the part in The Frighteners, mm. the Peter Jackson movie. Who hasn't seen The Frighteners? Maybe me. That's an excellent shameful You'll part. enjoy it. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ermi averaged eight or nine takes, but sometimes managed to do it in three, which was quite remarkable for a Kubrick film. And the way he learned his lines was the same way he got the part, which was a production assistant throwing oranges and tennis balls at him while he practised his lines. He had to catch the ball and throw it back while saying his lines as fast as possible. If he missed one or hesitated, he'd have to start again. And he would run through it 20 times perfectly before he would finish this ritual. And he filmed himself doing this, apparently, and that's what got him the part. And Kubrick liked how prepared he was. But he and the recruits didn't rehearse together because he wanted the reactions to his insults to be completely genuine. So he'd shout at them for 10 hours a day. Some interesting near casting, but Vincent D'Onofrio is in the finished film and was a struggling theatre actor working at the Hard Rock Cafe when he had a chat with Matthew Modine, who'd got a part and auditioned. And Kubrick told him he had to gain weight. He ended up gaining £70 to play Private Pile, which broke the record for the most amount of weight gained for a film role. Ironically, by eating donuts over and over again. <laughs> yeah, um, and that record wasn't surpassed until a few years later when Jared Leto gained £500 to play the title <laughs> role in Big. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the part of Animal Mother, who's Adam Baldwin's character, according to IMDb, was turned down by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who chose to star in The Running Man instead. Bruce Willis also claimed in an interview that he was forced to turn down a lead role because he was about to start filming his sitcom Moonlighting. That's bollocks though, isn't it? I wouldn't trust those sort of IMDb things. Well, this is an interview with Willis. This is Willis yeah. himself saying I don't this. trust Bruce Willis. <laughs> <laughs> he upset Kevin Smith. <laughs> According to Modine, Val Kilmer uh, confronted him in a restaurant one day and challenged him to a fight because he believed Modine had stolen the part from him. Mm. Which sounds like a very Val Kilmer thing to do. He was yeah. dressed as Batman at the time. <laughs> yeah. Just to finish off, I'll talk a little bit about my thoughts of it, because 
it's one of those films that I felt like I had seen before I'd ever seen it, just because of the number of other things that reference it. I mean, you talked about The Frighteners. It's one of those films where you watch it and go, ah, now I understand several dozen Simpsons jokes (laughs) because they're all referencing that film. Cartman in South Park takes on the role of the Vietnamese prostitute with some of her classic lines that I won't repeat. And uh, the famous poster of the helmet with Born to Kill written on it is parodied on the cover of one of my favourite PlayStation games, which is Hogs of War, which is a little bit like worms, but with pigs. And they're all different armies from around the world. And Rick Mayle voices all of them. And you just blow up pigs dressed like soldiers. Their one had Born to Grill written on the helmet. It's probably my favourite Vietnam film. I like it more than Apocalypse Now. I like it more than Platoon. And it's got a lot of nerd cred in it as well. Not just with D'Onofrio in the first half of the film, but Jane, the hero of Canton, is in the second half of the film. So that works for me. And I, I really like the structure with the two halves the first half being boot camp and the second half being in the war, both showing the dehumanising of new recruits and then what happens to them after they've gone through that process, going through all this horrific violence and not really caring about it because of the way they've been trained. But a lot of reviews do prefer the first half to the second, which I would agree with. I think the boot camp stuff's really good. I think it was Roger Ebert who said if it had finished there, it would be a perfect war film. If you had to have a quotation on your war helmet before you were sent off <laughs> what, careful. what would your quote be please don't shoot <laughs> mine would be me love you long time <laughs> on your helmet what, did, what is that what you said <laughs> is that helmet? what you said to Keanu <laughs> yeah. uh, I think I would have um, help <laughs> I don't think I I'd need do, somebody I don't think I'd do well in Vietnam or well, probably now. It's, I'm sure it's lovely or, now. Or any war zone. Any war. I basically, don't put me. Don't send me to war, please. You wouldn't be my first choice. No, <laughs> I've got a gummy knee, <laughs> and and I'm a coward. Yeah, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman would beat that out of you. It wouldn't take long for the uh, sock full of soap to make an appearance if they were trying to train me. How many? Um, how many goddamn reach rounds out of ten <laughs> would you give Full Metal Jacket? I would give it nine goddamn reach-arounds, you maggot. <laughs> it's a lot of reach-arounds. It's, it's a, a good, lot of reach-arounds. It's a good day, that. Yeah. You are a gentleman. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I would give it $5 and I'm not going to do the accents. That is all we've got time for for this episode. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Remember to join us on our social discussions on Twitter and Facebook. We're at Nerdfest UK. You can also get some merchandise from the Redbubble website. We've got notebooks, T-shirts and mugs and leggings and things like that. If you buy the leggings, please (laughs) send us a photograph. Please reconsider your (laughs) choices before you get to the baskets. But if you do, yes, we want to see those leggings on a real life person oh we do definitely and i'm not going to be the one to do it we'd also like you to send us some questions for us on social media because in future episodes we're going to start to have a few movie debates about various topics so it could be something like what are the best scenes in worst movies so send in your suggestions and we'll take a lick but in the meantime you have we'll been, take a lick we'll take yeah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lick all oh, the suggestions. Oh, you're going to lick the suggestions, okay. Are you going to pick them out first or just on the screen? 
Um, you know what? I'm a I'm equal opportunities. I'll do both. Lick the screen and lick the paper, and then give them to you. Look forward to that <laughs> slimy suggestion. <laughs> But in the meantime, you have been listening to Peter Johnson, John Farley, Dan Watkins, and I'm Hazel Burton. Thanks for listening. See you later. Please let me back on Star Tours. I'll be good. <laughs> Don't trust him. Bye. Bye. Next time, duck. I married Rambo.